right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are in the middle of this series. Um, it's the 19th week, but we're in the middle, if that tells you anything. Um, we're looking at this book of Revelation, and um, we are in the process of trying to not only learn what God wants us to know about our future, but to apply it to our lives, right? I mean, it does us no good to come here and just learn and debate little things if, if we don't take what God wants us to take from the book. Now, we're towards the end of the trumpet judgments, and we'll just put that slide up for a second. Uh, and you'll see that the seventh trumpet involves the bowl judgments, and we'll get to those in a few weeks. But, but we're kind of in this place, and, and, and it's almost hard to look at because We've seen so much happen already, and yet it's just starting. And it's hard to imagine how there could be anybody left on earth who isn't falling on their face and going, God, I surrender. I, I get it. Millions have died. The world is a mess. Last week, we learned how God judged creation. Those, those who worship the creation instead of the creator, and a third of the creation was completely destroyed. We saw how God specifically targets his judgments for man's false gods. Now we're at the fifth and sixth trumpets. And he's going to turn back, not focusing on creation as much. He's going to move back towards the people who are rejecting him. His judgment is beginning to move towards those who don't follow Jesus. It's almost hard to imagine how this could get any worse than it already is. And yet we're barely halfway through and not quite yet to the great temptation, the great tribulation. We still have seven thunders and seven bowls that have to be released. The seven thunders don't get talked about much. We'll get to those in a few weeks. But basically there, there are seven uh, likely voices, words of God spoken directly to mankind. In other words, there's a point in Revelation where God speaks not through his actions, but through his very word, the word of God going directly to those who are still rebelling seven times. Now, now we don't know, but I suspect it's God's final plea for them to repent. These seven thunders John was not allowed to write down. Of all the things John wrote down, God had seven thunderous voices to the world, and he told John, don't write that down. In addition to that, there's going to be seven bowls, seven bowl judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth. We're not even like to the great tribulation yet, and I can't imagine what it'd be like to be on earth. If you remember, we left with this verse last week, Revelation 8, 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Things we think are bad, but now there's three trumpets that are getting ready to blow that God calls the three woes. The inhabitants on earth. Do you remember when the martyrs complained and asked, when is the time going to come? When you avenge our death, it's coming now. Now those who live through these three trumpets, there's really three groups. There's a group, a remnant of believers 
who are going to be going through the great tribulation and they will flee Jerusalem when it gets attacked at the end and be taken care of by God. So there's a group of believers who, who have surrendered to Christ during the tribulation and they're, they're on the earth at this point. Second is the 144,000 from the tribes that we know are on the earth at this point and they're evangelists trying to reach the world. And third are the inhabitants of the earth who remain who are unrepentant. So that's the three groups, right? Missing from earth is the great multitude who have been martyred, who are at the throne asking God, when are you going to avenge our death? If you remember from Revelation 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were given white robes and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Then remember we had the sixth seal which brought the big earthquake and then Revelation 7, 9 after I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their arms, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What you see here is heaven being filled with believers. Some who are martyred from all nations, all countries, everybody. Revelation 7, 13. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. We studied that about three weeks ago. The three woes is God's answer to their plea. How long? Now. Right now. I'm going to answer the call. I'm going to use the next three judgments to avenge your death, martyrs. Revelation 9.1, we pick up today. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Now there's four phases of this trumpet that happens. The pit is unlocked. The power is unleashed. The appearance is unveiled. And the prince is unmasked. That's what's going to happen pretty soon. We're going to start seeing literally the abyss rise up to earth and begin to impact the world. In his visions, Paul or John had already seen several heavenly bodies plunge to earth. This star, however, we can tell from the writing, was not a physical star. It's a person. Many think it's a reference to Satan or one of his fallen angels. Isaiah had previously described a time when Satan rebelled and was cast to earth. This is a different time than that. But during the tribulation, he and his demon hosts 
will unsuccessfully battle Michael and they'll be permanently cast down to earth. We're going to read later in Revelation that there's a war going on in heaven between the demons and the angels and the demons are cast down to earth. Saw a star falling from heaven. It's a hymn. It means he's already fallen. Now, now here's the thing I want you to think about. This star, this person, this Satan who is cast to earth is given the keys to hell. Think about that for a minute. I thought Satan already had the keys to hell. No. Who, who has the keys to hell? Hmm. And who gives them to this fallen angel? Well, if you remember way back at the very beginning of Revelation, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the alpha living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I keep saying this over and over. God is in control of everything that happens in Revelation. This is not a story of an angry God just unleashing his vengeance on the world. This is a calculated, calibrated, corrective action. The key is given to this person for a specific time, for a specific purpose. This angel serves God's purposes even if he doesn't intend to or want to. And in chapter 20, we're going to see that Jesus will lock this place up again. So he's opened the abyss for a time for his purposes. Now as time begins to run out, Satan is going to try to get all of his demonic hosts and all of those incarcerated in the bottomless pit and get them out so they can wreak havoc on what's left of the world. Scripture teaches us that God has chosen to incarcerate certain demons in a pit of punishment right now. There are demons right now who are not free to roam the earth that God has imprisoned. How do we know that? 2 Peter verse chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until when? The judgment. There are demonic spirits, demonic beings, right now cast into the abyss by God for this moment, a day in the future when they will be released on earth. The demons are undoubtedly the most wicked, vile, and perverted of all the fallen angels. They weren't even allowed to hang out on earth. Picture what the world, this may not be hard anymore. Picture what the world would be like if we opened the doors of all the penitentiaries on earth and we set the most vicious and violent criminals free to do whatever they want to mankind. Something worse than that is what we're talking about. Satan cast out of heaven is now permitted to bring all of his forces, summon up all of his diabolical friends from the abyss to act as his agent bringing mankind to the footstool of the beast that's the Antichrist. That's what's happening here. Seven times in the book of Revelation, the word abyss is referred to. 
The last time is when it's mentioned in the 20th chapter, when a mighty angel comes down from heaven, lays hands upon the devil, the dragon, the serpent, and binds him for a thousand years in this abyss. Okay, so this is going to be Satan's place during the millennial kingdom. It's not his eternal home. His eternal home will be a lake of fire with all those who served and worshipped him. So this demonic power is unleashed with the fifth trumpet. Then from the smoke came locusts on earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is part of the judgment of the fifth trumpet. God's going to make demonic hordes previously in prison. They're going to transform the earth. They're going to go across the earth as demonic beasts, destructive locust-like scorpions. Swarmed out of the abyss. Now in the Bible, uh, locusts are often, and grasshoppers are often meant as ways of God's punishment on people because they'd wipe out everything. The crops. Locust swarms consume all vegetation around them. Remember the locust plague back in Egypt. Now I have to tell you, this part of the story, if you weren't a believer before this, be a believer now. Okay, I lived in Arizona for 10 years. Scorpions are straight from hell. I'm just telling you, they are bad. They are demonic before that and this isn't even this is worse we used to have them everywhere and when they sting they hurt and yes i have a huge phobia of scorpions period one night i was coming off call i was really sleepy i was really tired and there was a scorpion inside my shoe and i saw it and i dumped it out and it ran across the carpet so I yelled for Tammy to come help me find the scorpion because I had my glasses on and I knew he ran. To this day, she says I was screaming like a little girl because there was a scorpion in the room. I love her, but she doesn't always tell the truth. Now, here's the thing. She let me fall asleep. And then she waited till she knew I was absolutely out. And she reached under the covers and she crawled up my leg. I've never hit a ceiling fan as hard as I hit that ceiling fan. I hate scorpions. The power of these beasts is like the power of scorpions. See, the thing about scorpions is they bite and they hurt, but they almost never kill. There's only one species of scorpion that can kill. It's in northern Mexico, and the only antidote is at Arizona State University. So you know. Now, these demons are told to only mess with men, not all people, only those who do not have the seal of God on their heads. How do we know these aren't just a band of locust scorpions? Because they have discernment. They don't attack everything. They only attack those without the seal. 
Believers will be preserved just as God sheltered Israel from the impact of many of the Egyptian plagues. Those who have the seal are not only the 144,000 evangelists, but also the rest of the redeemed who are still on earth. The seal marks them as being personally belonging to God and protected from the forces of hell. After a millennial of captivity, these vile demons no doubt have pent up evil and have been released to slaughter people. Satan wants to kill everybody to keep them from repenting. But God in his mercy limits this to five months. Which is the normal lifespan of locusts, by the way. Usually from May to September, in case you're wondering. They're not going to die. But they're given five months to repent. Think about this. You're walking down the street. Locusts are stinging, attacking, biting everyone, and you're just strolling down the street as a believer. And the people who are being bitten aren't suddenly going, God, I believe, make this stop. No, five months, they're still rejecting God. Now notice that everything these scorpions do, or whatever you want to call them, is under the direct guidance of God. They're not out of control. They're doing exactly what God allows them to do. Don't touch the believers. Don't kill anyone. Only five months. Unbelievers are going to hear the 144,000 evangelists telling them to turn to God and repent. And if they do that, the locusts, they'll be protected too. There'll be two witnesses we're going to learn. Other believers. It's their last opportunity to repent and to believe. Now think about how hardened you have to be to be willing to go through five months of torture that you don't know is only going to last five months and still reject God. So far they have loved and worshipped everything that's being devastated. Land, earthquakes, fires, volcanoes, the sea is filled with putrefied bodies of billions of dead creatures. Much of the fresh water has turned to bitter poison. The atmosphere is polluted with gases and there's showers of heavenly debris. Then worst of all, a foul smell comes from the pit of hell as the demons are released to spiritually and physically torment wicked people. And all in that, there's a dream of the leadership of the Antichrist for worldwide utopia. Driven mad by the filth and vileness of demons, people are going to want to die, but they can't. There'll be no escape from this agony. No escape from this divine judgment. All attempts at suicide, whether gunshot, poison, drowning, leaping from buildings, they all fail. Now this reversal is a direct contrast to what we usually see. For most people, death is the icy monster who pursues us across our life and finally gets its grasp on us and we die, so we spend our life fleeing from death. In normal picture, man is fleeing as rapidly as he can from death. 
Now as a result of the plague, it's reversed. The scriptures tell us men are seeking death, but death is fleeing. It seems like at this point, the earth is literally cracking at its core. Remember last time we talked about it's like the earth has been hit by a cue ball with the earthquakes and the destruction. Now we're watching it open from within. And from that core spews great furnace, fills the atmosphere. This is what global warming is. The earth is going to be filled with lava. And if that's not bad enough, verse 7, in appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. When you read about these creatures, scorpions don't sound so bad anymore. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he's called Apollyon. Apollyon means destroyer. Greek word means destroyer. What's interesting is he's called Apollyon, but he doesn't have the power to destroy. He can't kill anybody. Only God can do that. Typical of Satan. He's bigger in claims than he is in ability. This is likely a high-ranking demon in Satan's hierarchy. The reason I think that John uses both the Hebrew and the Greek word is to tell both Jews and Gentiles what he means and what he's about. For five months, they're going to torture ungodly sinners. What's interesting is they want to torture the believers, but God won't let them. Eventually, he'll return them to the abyss with their evil master and send them to a lake of fire. But for now, free reign within the restrictions of God. Revelation 9.12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Whoa. Six angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who has the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number, he said. You see, John heard a voice. In the Greek, it reads literally one voice, a single voice. He stresses that he hears a single, solitary voice. It's likely the Lamb, Jesus. This voice came from the altar, which had always been a place of mercy. Come and cling to the altar. You will receive mercy from God. Now, the very judgment of God is coming from that place. It's no longer a place of mercy. It's a place of judgment. 
By the time the trumpet occurs, the time for mercy is gone. Sinful men will have finally rejected God. From this point forward in Scripture, it appears that no one further repents. No matter what happens. All who will be saved, it appears they have been saved. Clearly, the believers were protected from the stings of the locusts. That should have showed them. If they just called out to God, it would have stopped. Now with the second woe, we're going to see that a third of the earth's population, what's left on the earth, will die. The other two-thirds are going to be spared by God's mercy. Think about that for a minute. Why do two-thirds not die? Because God is merciful. He still wants them to repent. I didn't say they couldn't, I said they won't. From this point forward, it appears that no one further repents. God in his mercy allows this trumpet to only kill a third of the people on the earth, but those two thirds do not turn back to him. Does that make sense? Most of Satan's angels have freely roamed the earth. But here's what we learn in this. There are four demonic beings who right now are bound in the river Euphrates. Right now. You say, well, that sounds fanciful. Well, just say it. Scriptures say they're there. Why are they there? For a day in the future. A day, a month, a time when God says, be free. These four in particular are mentioned here, and they were the worst of the worst of the worst. They come from the river Euphrates, a river that God had previously used for life and food and water, a river that flowed out of the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sorry, the Garden of Eden, if you remember. But now man has been through repetitive sins. You see, the Euphrates rises near Mount Ararat in Turkey flows more than 1,700 miles before it dumps into the Persian Gulf. The longest, most important river in the Middle East. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's near the Euphrates where sin began. It's where the first lie was told. First murder was committed. The Tower of Babel was built. It's the place where humanism was born and false religions resulted. Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the promised land. During the time of David and Solomon, Israel's influence reached all the way to the Euphrates. The region near the Euphrates is the central location of the three world powers that opposed Israel, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. It's on the banks of the Euphrates that Israel endured 70 long wearisome years of captivity in Babylon. It's the river which the enemies of God are going to cross in the final battle of Armageddon. It's an important river, and yet it turns out that right now there are four major demons bound there waiting for their day. So who are these four demons? Well, it's a definitive article that suggests they are a specific group. Most people think that these are the demons that were over the four major world powers. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. 
Whoever they are, they're going to wage war against fallen mankind when God releases them to do so. They think they're going to be doing the work of Satan when actually they're accomplishing God's purposes, doing exactly what he wants them to do. Remember, everything is under the sovereign control of the one who holds everything in his hand. The demonic locusts that we learned in the last trumpet were, resulted, were restricted to tormenting mankind. But these four angels are allowed to kill. Death took a holiday under the fifth trumpet, just tortured people with locust stings. Now death returns with a vengeance. We have about six billion people on earth today. So maybe a billion people, I'd say two, but we've already lost probably a billion by now and all the other ones. This is gonna kill a lot of people. There's gonna be the stench of decaying corpuses around the, corpses around the world. Their number, the math, 200 million of these things. 200 million, demonic, around the world. To slaughter well over a billion people will require a lot of them. John reports the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. And everybody said, no way, you, you can't count that. That's why he said, I heard the number of them. Not my opinion, I'm not counting from the throne of God, it says there's 200 million. Spiritual forces of wickedness of heavenly places have been cast to earth. The demons of the abyss are loose on earth. 200 million more with the sixth trumpet. Attempts to identify the horses and riders in chapter nine are exhaustive. And I wanna, I wanna stop here for a minute and explain something. A lot of people read Revelation and they try to figure out what everything is. Oh, well, these aren't really demonic forces, people say. These aren't demonic individuals or, or angels. Uh, John's trying to describe uh, a, a helicopter with guns coming out of the back and flames coming forward and somebody driving it and he doesn't know how to explain it. So these are the helicopters of an army. And you'll see people online argue this back and forth. It doesn't matter what it is. God is using this demonic force as a judgment against people who now are absolutely hardened to his truth. Don't get lost in the weeds. In Revelation, everybody wants to try to figure out everything and they miss the overall picture. We're gonna see that an army arrives at the sixth bowl judgment, the final army. We have an army now released at the sixth trumpet. Note how every action is allowed for and limited by God. Only a third of mankind. A cursory reading of the Old Testament shows over and over how God uses evil people to bring judgment onto his people in an effort to move them back to him. Assyria, Babylon, evil people who were used to attack and take over Israel. The fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. God uses them all the time. Revelation 9, 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. 
So these are the demonic beings, the 200 million. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. These are even worse than the locusts. They got power of smoke and sulfur coming from their mouth. Their tails are like snakes where they wound people. They're described in weird, grotesque terms. This is a powerful visual image picture of horror, destruction, and demonic association. And then perhaps the most amazing verse in all of Revelation. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now one might ask, why did John put these two verses into Scripture? Well, one, God told him to. The outpouring of God on humanity during these seven years of tribulation demonstrate two important truths. First, even the imminent threat of God is not the ultimate deterrent to sin. Even if you know you're going to be punished by God, it's not the ultimate deterrent. Many people think that swift, adequate punishment of criminal offenses is a deterrent, and I agree with them. On the other hand, the teaching of Scripture says there's a level of depravity bound up in the hearts of people that so deceives and distorts to the point that people don't care anymore about the consequence of their actions. They eventually become completely desensitized to sin and to God's opposition of it. Their consciences are gone. We see people like that in our culture today. Paul said it this way. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's what happened. You get to a point, you're, you're just gone. You're depraved in your sin. In almost every generation, there, there's a group of people who feel like God's judgment is inappropriate. The generation behind mine. They, they just think that any judgment by God can't come from God. If God's to be God, they say, He's to be characterized by love and patience and tolerance. And if He doesn't hold on to those things, He can't be God. And if He's loving, He must have unlimited patience. But if He becomes a God of justice and judgment, where His patience actually wore out, how could he be a God, they say? Somehow for them, and many I know very well, their God can only be a God of love and don't miss it, tolerance. But one cannot read the reaction of the inhabitants of the Great Tribulation 
with a sense that there comes a point where God has to act in judgment. There just comes a point where if he doesn't act, he's not just. For God to fail to judge when he's given every warning. Hey, if you do that, no, here's another warning. Here's another warning. Here's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Here's more warnings. If he at some point doesn't bring his judgment on evil, then he's powerless against evil and isn't really God. For God to be God at some point, his mercy has to run out. His justice has to prevail. His righteousness has to come forward. The people of this time are going to ignore the repeated powerful preaching of the gospel. The warning conveyed by the judgments of God. Having rejected every offer of grace and mercy, they're going to see death come upon mankind through the trumpet and bowl judgments, which are going to deliver death on a scale never seen in the world before. It's unimaginable to think that after years of suffering, after seeing all the judgments of God, coupled with the preaching of the gospel, two witnesses, angels in the sky, other believers, that survivors are still going to refuse to repent. They're not even close to repenting. In fact, they're going to curse God. They've made the irrevocable choice of siding with hell. Despite the upheavals, despite the tragedies, despite the loss created by the fifth and sixth trumpets, they're still going to reject the one true God. Their lives are going to be steeped in violence and all kinds of practices and sins. God's purpose in the judgment of the one-third was meant to motivate the two-thirds to repent, but they don't. Notice the language. Mankind that survived still did not repent. They did not stop, nor did they repent. Three times, John says, these survivors stubbornly kept on sinning. They refused to repent. They weren't about to give it up. Two-thirds of the population saw the second woe. Every third person on the planet died. Why didn't they die? Because of God's mercy. He's still trying to give them a chance to repent. It's incredible. You see, humanity's heart at this point is hardened towards God. They're in outright rebellion. Remember how in Exodus... It said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened with every plague. We need to understand what hardening of the heart means. It doesn't mean that Pharaoh had this soft, tender heart and God turned him into a demon and made his heart hard. That's not what it means. Every Greek word has both a meaning and an image. The image for hardening a heart is a rope tied to a boat dock to a boat. Picture that. Boat, rope, boat dock. As the boat pulls away, the knot starts to tighten. As the boat keeps pulling away, the knot gets tighter and tighter. As the knot gets wet, it gets tighter and tighter the more they pull away. See the image? That's the image. Pharaoh's heart with every plague, he's pulling away, resisting God, and the knot is tightening. His heart's becoming tied up. 
It's not that God put it in there. It's that his actions impacted the manifestation of the tension of pulling away from God. When you pull away from God, the scriptures say your heart begins to harden and that knot becomes tighter and tighter. Not because God's done anything, but because you've done something. After each catastrophe, the people on earth continue to pull from God. The same thing happens in my patients with heart failure. Their heart has to pump against so much resistance that first it seems like the muscle just gets bigger and bigger and everything's good. But as the heart keeps working against that resistance, it stiffens and it doesn't pump well anymore. There's a point of of no return for the heart where it gets so stiff it can't be fixed. The same thing happens to our spiritual heart when we keep pulling away from God. If we resist what God wants and constantly pull away and it goes on too long, then we see people who have a hardened heart towards God. John says, look, their hearts are hardened beyond repair. And he says, here's how you're going to know who they are. They're going to be idolaters, mysticism, spiritual things, Satanism, all other forms of false religion are going to be pandemic in the world at this point. Second, violent crimes like murders are going to be rampant. Without any sense of morality, evil, unrepentant people will respond to the demon's bloodlust. Third, sorcery is a Greek word from which we get the word pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. Drugs are believed to be a hidden restate of communion with the demonic. There's going to be poisons and seances and witchcrafts and magic spells and mediums and all kinds of things going on in the world. The fourth is immorality. The word for there for Greek is porneia. It means we're going to have a world full of sexual sin and pornographies. And then the fifth is thefts. John says the world will be full of people who steal for the scarce supplies that are left. Under the influence of massive demons and people who reject God, there's going to be a morass of false religion, murder, sexual perversion, and crime like we've never seen before. And we haven't even got to the bowl judgments yet. The third woe. After the second woe passes, the Bible begins to turn. And it turns, it, we'll talk about this next time, Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. From this point forward, the third woe is going to be everything that happens all the way to Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back. And, and what the scriptures are telling us is there's a move now. The seventh trumpet judgment is the third woe. It'll continue until God finishes his final judgment. It'll include the seven bowls of wrath that we're going to study coming up. Those are the days that Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That's where we're headed, into those days. We'll be examining the third woe in the weeks to come when God brings his final judgment among everybody. So what do we do with this exactly? I mean, how do we apply the book of Revelation to our lives? I mean, okay, I get it. There's going to be horrible times. I'm not going to be here. I I know what's going to happen. I'll walk out of here confident that I'm okay. That's not the point. 
You see, Revelation provides us with high-def footage of the climactic end of world history. It ties together all of God's redemptive purposes in the world, delivers us literally to the doorstep of eternity. When we study this book and we think about the truth that it contains, we'll begin to change our entire perspective on the world and on our lives. If we listen carefully, understanding the book of Revelation always moves you to action. It appears that God's main purpose for the book of Revelation is simply that he wants to change us. That's why we're to study this book. He wants to change how we live. He wants to change who we live for and how we prepare for the future. He wants us to live knowing that we're already victorious and knowing that many others are going to a horrible destiny. Revelation helps us understand God's patience and mercy and desire for everyone to come to him. If he waits this long through Revelation, imagine how patient he is right now. It also helps us to understand the powerful influence that Satan has on the lives of non-believers. We see in this chapter how man can develop a heart so hardened that he becomes unreachable and unsavable. Understanding Revelation forces us to examine ourselves. It forces us to develop a zeal for destroying the sin in our lives. When you see the full impact of sin on the world, you're going to want to remove it from your life. I say this all the time. When I tell a patient they have cancer, their first question is, how do we get it out of me because it's going to kill me? When I counsel people that they have a sin in their life, they don't say, you got to get that out of me because it's going to kill me and my family. They start rationalizing how they can keep it. Keep doing what they want to do. You've got to see sin in your life as a cancer that's going to kill you. And then you can see sin in the world as a cancer that's going to kill mankind. Understanding Revelation forces us to maintain the purity of the local church. It motivates us to be the remnant, to hold on to the truth of God when the world does not and many other churches do not. Knowing our future and the future of those that reject Jesus moves us to have compassion on those who have been deceived by Satan. And it helps us counsel people in their darkness. It gives us an urgency to reach the people around us because that knot is not near as tight now as it may be in the future. Does that make sense? The people around us are pulling away from God, but the knot is still loose enough for him to reach them. Knowing Revelation inspires us to develop our earnestness to obey, our diligence to pray, and our disgust of worldliness, and our earnest longing to go home to Jesus. Most of all, it inspires us to prepare everything for his return, and in the meantime, to become more like him. That's what happens when Jesus is revealed. You see, the book of Revelation is one revelation. It's Jesus himself. When he's lifted up, all men are drawn. When he's lifted up in your life, you are drawn. It's an incredible book. And yet it moves all of us to go deeper with God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you wanted us to know the future. 
but you also wanted us to see ourselves right now. We have been blessed with the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things and who unlocks these scriptures to us. Most people who don't believe in you have never read this far in Revelation. They have no idea what it says. And the book makes absolutely no sense to them. So if they're going to see truth, God, they're going to have to see it and hear it in us. Scriptures say, how will they know if no one tells them? Blessed are the feet that bring the good news. God, we are those feet. We know the truth. We have a world that's resistant, but not as much as it will be. Every day that we get closer to your return, people are pulling harder and harder away from you. We need to reach out to the people that we know and begin to share with them the reason that we have the hope that we have. So God, help us not to be hearers of the word, but also to be doers. Help us to examine ourselves and to get the sin out of us like a cancer before we go and try to help others. God, I pray that when you look down on this church, you see a group of people whose hearts are yours and who are willing to say, here I am, Lord, send me. We love you, we thank you. Please don't leave us where we were when we walked in this room. We can't wait for your return, but in the meantime, move us out into the field. And we ask it in Jesus' name.